Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You've tuned in to the hippest, the hottest, the coolest culinary conversation on the radio. Great cooks aren't born, they're made. And a full hour of satiation for all you food fanatics starts right here and right now. Whether you love to cook or love to eat, well, you are bound to find something you'll love on this show because I cover everything having to do with the wide and wonderful world of food, but I'm really all about living the best life. So I'll share with you the best dishes and recipes, and chefs across the country and around the world. We'll cover travel and tech, health, mixology, wellness, wine, and more. And it is my goal every Sunday to feed your soul. You'll always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and my daily dish is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. But let's get this party started. Let's talk fried chicken, shall we? Since a summer picnic of fried chicken might be the most perfect food feast for family and friends. You've heard the buzz about Carla Hall's fried chicken restaurant in New York. Uh, Michael Chang has a fast casual offshoot of Mama Fuku called Fuku, where he sells only a chicken sandwich. And then, of course, there is Chick-fil-A fame of which I am not personally a fan, but people seem to go nuts over it. The only thing they all have in common is the crispy, delicious, moist, and tender fried chicken that is at the heart of it all. And how does the chicken get that way, you ask? Well, some chefs will say from a pickle brine. Whether you have a tasty jar of pickles uh, or you need to buy one or you're finishing the last spear, please don't pour out that juice Don't pour it down the drain. In fact, consider saving it and using it because uh, pickle juice or pickle brine is all the rage when it comes to fried chicken. It's a mixture of water, salt, and spice, right? Some of the fancier varieties might have, you know, some garlic, hot peppers, or horseradish. Uh, The pickle juice happens to be especially delicious in lots of things, even more than fried chicken, like if you've never put it in a cocktail. It may sound weird, but it is a key ingredient in the perfect Bloody Mary, and it happens to make a really absolutely delicious dirty martini. Taste the brine first, by the way, so that you know what flavors are in it that you're introducing to the mix, and you want to make sure that you strain it before you put it into a cocktail, of course. You can always freeze the pickle juice from the jar in an ice cube tray, And then you can drop it into a cocktail, like specifically a Bloody Mary for a flavor kick. But back to fried chicken. The ultimate fried chicken, in my opinion, whether you use a pickle brine or just a traditional brine, must be brined. Yes, fried chicken must be brined. And it's a process. So you might not have fried chicken today, Sunday, but you can plan for it for next Sunday. You'll need at least 24 hours to brine the chicken because the best fried chicken is on the bone and it takes some time for that salt water solution that's been seasoned with other spices or aromatics as you see fit. Uh, My brine, by the way, always has two things, brown sugar and uh, vanilla extract or vanilla paste. That same brine works 
brilliantly for pork as well. But the brine takes about 24 hours. Then I happen to like a buttermilk bath that takes a minimum of four hours. And then you have the day of cooking. So that ultimate fried chicken does need to be brined. It then needs to be dipped in something. Now, some chefs will tell you that fatty liquid like buttermilk tends to create soggy chicken. I vehemently disagree. Uh, Those chefs use whipped egg whites to coat their chicken, but I don't think that you get that beautiful acid that the buttermilk contributes. Uh, Some people are known to use Greek yogurt that's been thinned out, but no matter which way you do it, brine, then coat, then flour. Now, seasoned flour is my preference and very well-seasoned flour. In fact, liberally more than you think. And then I fry in canola oil. But it's that perfectly crunchy skin that we all love so much on fried chicken that you need a few chef's tips for, or I'd love to share my cardinal rules. So listen up. Okay. To guarantee perfectly crispy fried chicken, do the following things. You always want to dry your chicken with a paper towel before you start dipping. And that's in the seasoned flour, by the way. So if you're going straight from the brine to the flour, if you're going from the buttermilk to the flour, the chicken needs to be dried off. Now, it sounds counterintuitive because you need something for the flour to adhere to. But there is a difference between sticky residual moisture that comes from the skin of the chicken naturally and the kind of moisture that will make the chicken soggy. So when I take it out of the buttermilk, I do pat it down really well and dry it off. Then I let the chicken sit for a minute or so. So it sort of gets tacky. And then I coat the chicken with flour. Now, I happen to pack it on there and then shake pretty well because you want to get a good even coating. Now, some chefs believe that extra flour turns into crispy goodness in a fryer or a pot filled with oil. I like a thinner coating personally, but that again is up to you and your culinary preference. Now, you must flour the chicken just as the oil is coming to temperature. You do not want your coated chicken pieces sitting around because the flour will soak up the moisture from the chicken. Better yet, I say flour the chicken in batches just big enough to fit in your pot. And then when you're ready for the next batch, you flour the chicken just before it's about to go into the hot oil. And then you want to fry your bird at high temperature. I'm talking 375 degrees. Yes, it fries faster. The outside will be crispier for it. But if you fry too low, you are guaranteed that sogginess we are trying to refrain from. That means that you do not want the oil to dip below 340 degrees at minimum the entire time the chicken is in there. And the oil is going to drop down when you add the chicken pieces. The goal is to keep that flame at medium high and to maintain the temperature. And then uh, two more tips. When you lower the chicken pieces into the hot oil, you want to submerge each piece halfway between the surface of the oil 
and you want to hold it there and count to five before you lower it the rest of the way. Now, you can definitely be a daredevil and do it by hand. You might feel more comfortable with a long pair of tongs, but this prevents that flat, soggy spot from developing where the chicken sat in contact with the pan. So you'll see that on all your favorite cooking shows on TV. Uh, Most chefs will hold something suspended in the fryer for that few seconds before they let it go. And last but not least, and maybe most importantly, please do not overcrowd your pan. It lowers the temperature of the oil much faster, and the burner on your stove can't reheat it no matter how good it is. And longer frying time means soggy, greasy fried chicken. And then, if you can, this is a great tip. And and one that you should sort of keep in your back pocket. Don't tell anybody. It will just make your fried chicken stand out from the rest. You always want to cool your fried chicken on a cooling rack, not on a plate. The chicken in contact with the plate or any hard surface causes condensation to form, which then contributes to more soggy skin. So pull out that baking rack or that cooling rack that you use for cookies and lay your fried chicken pieces on it for just a few seconds before you just can't wait any longer to drizzle honey, grab a biscuit and dig in. See, now I've successfully made myself hungry, and hopefully I've made you hungry too, and that means I've done my job for the day. Now, you can find my best, what I call old-fashioned fried chicken recipe at chefjamie.com, and please send me a picture of your fried chicken so that I can slobber on my computer screen. I'd love to see it. If you have any uh, secret chef's tips or tricks, share those too. My email address, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com. And in food news this week, this is some news you can use because food lovers should be in the know. Makes really good dinner party conversation. I actually tested a new product this past week and I have to say it was terrific. Maybe you don't have an espresso machine or you just want to brew really good, rich, traditional coffee at home. Call me traditional. I happen to be an iced coffee lover and the best way to make a great iced coffee is this way. It's a barista style brew and you can do it at home because there's this new product called the Coffee Gator. In January of 2015, it was created by a coffee enthusiast who set off on a mission to create the best coffee accessories and to sort of modernize the old school accessories used to make coffee. Yes, we all have a push button machine today, but there's there's something cool about the throwback. And for this brew... Uh, that iced coffee, which is my thing, I have to tell you, was so rich and so delicious. In order to make great iced coffee, you need a pour-over coffee maker. It really does take the highlights from every delicious note of the ground coffee beans because the water pours slowly over the ground coffee and you get the ultimate extraction or the ultimate flavor. Now, in the coffee gator, there's a reusable steel filter, so you don't have to buy paper filters. That's very eco-friendly, and I liked that. And it's under 25 bucks. And they asked me to try it, um, and they're not a sponsor of the show or otherwise. I just wanted you to know about it because it is a terrific modern update of the classic pour-over, and it does really make delicious coffee. So check it out at coffeegator.com and let me know what you think. And please do not touch your dial, because 
Coming up, we are going to sit down and dish, oh, and dig in with Serious Eats resident pastry chef, Stella Parks. She has some old school desserts that she is bringing back. And of course, we have to then work it off. So our resident fitness expert, Lisa Lynn, is doing the seven-day arm makeover. And trust me, you can do it. Stay tuned. There's lots more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Sharing the sweeter side of life. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Okay, if you love fudge, frosting, sprinkles, sticky buns, strawberry shortcake, or cherry pie, well, then you are going to drool over this next conversation. Stella Parks is a James Beard-nominated food writer and a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, the CIA. We share an alma mater, and I love that. She was named one of America's best new pastry chefs by food and wine, deservedly so. And she is best known as the resident pastry wizard at Serious Eats by the moniker Brave Tart. She is all about the research and recreation of memorable sweets, and her passion is newly documented in a delectable and encyclopedic cookbook of iconic American desserts entitled Brave Tart. I am delighted to share with you the genius and the sweet tooth that is Stella Parks. Hi, Stella. I'm glad to have you. Hey, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. I love fudge, by the way. I, don't, I think that there is something about like childhood memories and not even that my mom made fudge, Stella, but that ever, if ever I saw it or someone had it, I, I had to have it. Yeah, same way. It was we we go to the vacation on Myrtle Beach, and yes. there's always like a boardwalk or some area where it was being sold, and it wasn't something my mom made at home either. So it makes me think of like being on vacation and kind of having sugar, you know, before dinner and these, <laughs> these stolen bites. Yes. So it kind of it makes me excited like that. Yes, I I have to agree. It has a very long history. Yeah, it dates all the way back to 1888, or at least that's when we can officially say that here, you know, here's where fudge happened. We know it was fudge. Uh, realistically, it's probably much older and just went under a different name um, before that, um, as early as the 1860s. Uh, and that's just crazy because people don't really realize it goes back that far and they think it's more of like a, a recent invention. Right. And we know that it's been shortcutted along the way. Like you can find a recipe on a can of sweetened condensed milk or something like that. But I really appreciate the fact that you sort of went old school with it in your recreation recipe because you very specifically say no electric mixers making fudge that is truly great fudge today. Yeah, it, it reminds me, I mean, you've probably seen these fudge shops on the boardwalk where people are like slabbing this fudge on a table and just kind of churning it with like a hand tool. And it's really, that's all it takes. And it might sound intimidating to do at home, but it's really not. And it's fun and kind of messy and mm. you're chocolate covered in the end. And that's a win-win situation for me, homemade <laughs> fudge. And it's like all over my hands and it's perfect. Yes, it's very delicious. Um, but it's so much easier than a lot of people realize. There's a lot of very cool recipes out there that do use something like marshmallow fluff or sweetened condensed milk. 
and these things are great and they're they're fun shortcuts and they can make you know your time in the kitchen a lot easier but there's something to be said for like going back to the history of these desserts and how that they were originally made and going back to like really simple ingredients just butter and milk and sugar and cocoa powder and chocolate mm. and bringing it all together in in a really simple candy and when you do that, you don't need any of these other special ingredients and you don't need a lot of like the tips and tricks that yes. you, you see a lot of the times. You just need yeah. a, an accurate thermometer and the desire to be covered in chocolate. And an appreciation for fudge. That, that yeah. which we have, yes. I also have a fondness for pineapple upside down cake. And I would yes. love for you to wax poetic about it because I love the cutout idea. If I could, the photos are, are beautiful, by the way. If I could describe your pineapple upside down cake, it's sort of like star spangled, right? You cut yeah, that's a, that's the really stars. Yes. You, you use a cookie cutter to cut out stars of pineapple upside down cake. So then when you turn it over, it just has the most impressive finish for what is such an old school, made at home kind of comfort food, comfort feel dessert, I would call it. Yeah. So like, you know, traditional recipes, well, I wouldn't even, common recipes. Traditionally, pineapple upside down cake was actually made with fresh pineapple. And then it became adapted to use canned pineapple as that became more commonly available in America. And that's really great. It gave a lot of people access to pineapple when they didn't have it before. But now just about wherever you live, you can find fresh pineapple. So my idea is to get back to the fresh pineapple, which really puts a lot more flavor into the cake because nothing's lost during the canning process. I'm sure. But aside from that, people are really intimidated by peeling pineapples. And you see these videos where someone's like using this weird spiral cut technique to get all the skin and the rind of a pineapple and you're like how can I ever do this at home but it's really really simple all you have to do is take a pineapple cut off the top and then just slice it up like you'd slice a loaf of bread and that gives you these big meaty slabs of pineapple with a little bit of rind around the edges like a a loaf of bread like a slice of bread so you've got this crust to avoid and then some pieces have a little bit of core in the middle and that's easy to avoid also so that means you can take cookie cutters and just punch out the pineapple in whatever shape you like and it's just a really cool personal touch that you yes. could put on your own pineapple upside down cake. And so for me, smart. that I mean stars. So I've got a soft spot for stars. <laughs> so I wanted to go for some stars on my my version that's in the book. I love but it. But obviously, you could use whatever cool cookie cutters you have at home. And sure. when people see that, they just tend to freak out. Like, what? How the heck did you get these crazy shapes? Right. So I really, I really love that effect. I really do too. Uh, it's fabulous. Um, if you would please share your wizardry knowledge about birthday cake, because everyone has a birthday, but the the ultimate classic yellow cake chocolate frosting, hard to master uh, for for novices and connoisseurs alike. I think that we hold birthday cake on a very high pedestal. We do. I think a lot of it has to do with grocery store cakes. Yes. We all grew up with these grocery store cakes, and then we get this idea that, okay, well, I want to make the, a big fluffy yellow cake from scratch. And then we try making it at home, and, and honestly, it doesn't live up to the boxed mix. Mm-hmm. And so you're just kind of like slightly disappointed. You're like, well, this isn't, this isn't what I remember because we you know, have this very specific memory from like the Betty Crocker or Duncan Hines cakes that we grew up or even just the grocery store sheet cakes that, that are bought right there. So my recipe really tries to capture those flavors because that's what I grew up with. My mom always made like a Betty Crocker cake. And I love that flavor, but I, just, I want to make it just – it's something personal that comes out of just being a hands-on, you know, individual and wanting to do that. So my recipe tries to capture the same extreme fluffiness that you find in a box cake, which you don't always get with homemade cakes, and also that insanely vibrant yellow color 
which to me screams yellow cake. And there's a lot of recipes that are hypothetically for yellow cake, but you make them and you couldn't tell the difference between that and a white cake. So with mine, it's like electric yellow, but totally natural. And it just has that flavor that you're looking for if you if you grew up on a box cake. And if you didn't, I, you know, I don't know what I can tell you, but it's and, really tasty. But totally natural from what? Will you disclose, please, what the yellow color comes from? Lots of egg yolks. Lots I've got and lots. There's about a half a cup of egg yolks in this recipe. And granted, it's a big cake. So as long as you hear that number, you kind of spaz a little bit, but... It's a big cake, it's still a lot of egg yolks, and it just gives it this like unbelievably golden color. By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because Stella Parks is here. Yes, known and loved at Sirius Eats as the resident pastry wizard. You know her as Brave Tart. And the book by the same name, A Cookbook of Iconic American Desserts, has just released. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with pastry chef Stella Parks. More right after this. Sharing sweet insight this Sunday, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with James Beard Award nominee Stella Parks. Having devoted her career to deliciously memorable sweets made better, the classic American desserts that we know and love, all chronicled in the new cookbook release entitled Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts from SeriousEats.com, Stella Parks author is here. Key lime pie is quintessential summer, is it not? I, I definitely think so. It's, yes. It makes you think of vacation also, kind of like we're talking about fudge. Like right. Just, it's, it's summer break. It is. It, key lime pie is like, you know, when you used to say, we'll go to Florida because it was, or there was rather a time when you couldn't buy key lime juice in a bottle. Nevertheless, you can get key limes fresh today at certain times of the year and there is something about fresh key lime juice that just cannot be beat. It's a pretty zippy flavor, but the crazy part is a lot of what you think of as key lime juice isn't, isn't. Really key lime yes, juice. Yes, I know. So um, one of the things that I like to do is just say, use whatever lime juice you've got. And for a lot of people, that sounds like a heresy, but um, key limes aren't commercially cultivated in Key West anymore. So you're not getting key lime juice wherever you go. And aside from a few key places in America, California is one of them, also Florida. It's really hard to come by it. So I think that it's better to make the most of what you've got with regular supermarket limes and pay a lot of money for a product that isn't really going to be key lime juice. I'm all for it. Um, I, and I very much agree with you. It has a long uh, sort of tenured history, does it not, key lime pie? From my research, what I can tell is that key lime pie dates back to 1931, which is admittedly quite some time ago, but, but uh, a but, lot of people think it's older than that. Right. I, I can't really find any evidence to back that up. Interesting. And it has no it, paper trail. No paper. Key lime pie has no paper trail. That's funny. Has it elevated? Tell us what you've done to make it better, to master it. So for my version of key lime pie, there's not really a lot to fool with, right? It's like condensed milk, some key lime juice, some egg yolks, and, and you can't really mess with that. And so there are a million recipes that go by just those simple ingredients, and that's great. Um, but for mine, just to set it apart, I make my own condensed milk. 
and that infuses it with this unbelievable freshness. Like if you think key lime pie in and of itself is fresh, once you get rid of the canned flavor of canned milk and you've got this fresh flavor of this milk you've freshly cooked down on your own stovetop, it only takes 45 minutes, which is not really that long compared to a lot of other types of condensed milk recipes that can take six hours. But in 45 minutes, you can have this unbelievably thick, fresh, luscious condensed milk, and it it just changes the pie completely. Let's talk classic American branded desserts. Like, um, everybody loves a ding-dong. Who doesn't love a Twinkie, (laughs) right? And then you and I share a love. And I don't know if you, I don't know if I read, do you keep your thin mint cookies in, by the way, the the silver... uh, bag the 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 sheet of them right do you keep them in the freezer i i love having a sleeve of thin mints in the freezer a ready sleeve. to go thank because, you like that's what it, that's like, what it's called there's that's it's where so mine are crispy yes it's so cold oh they're and so they're, they make them out. they make the milk colder they're so good oh it's amazing okay tell us yeah you make them though do you put do you put them in a sleeve and pull it off. That's funny. I, I wish that I could say that I did, that right. I was that dedicated to it. But sure. No, I just, you know, pop them in a, in an airtight container of some sort. And I do keep them in the freezer. One, because it's easier to keep them that way. They last longer. Um, and they're very doable. That, yeah. And that cold. Yeah. They're super doable. It's a really easy recipe. And, you know, for some of the, the recipes in the book, you have to temper chocolate. Like if you want to make a candy bar, you have to melt the chocolate a very specific way to make sure that it is nice and crispy at room temperature. But with thin mints, even though they're covered in chocolate, you don't actually have to temper the chocolate if you keep them cold afterwards. Mm. And so that's a really nice shortcut where you don't have to worry about fooling with anything special about the chocolate. You can just melt it down and dip your homemade chocolate shortbread in there and then just toss it in the freezer and it's going to be totally delicious. No fun. Yes. Okay. And then leave us with this. I think it's very adventurous of you. And I credit you that you had a, a, a Sunday to make homemade sprinkles. But there is something so whimsical about it. I am tempted to, to try your recipe because there's something fun about sprinkles on a page like in your book. I- I've never seen that before. You should try it. It's really fun. Um, for starters, sprinkles don't normally taste like anything. And so no. if you make them yourself, you can just pick up your favorite extracts. There's a really cool um, website online called Silver Cloud Estates that sells all kinds of different, like every extract you could possibly imagine. And it's just really fun. People are always, like, shocked when they see it. And you can get custom colors. And someone's like, how in the world do you have sprinkles that match the color of your, you know, party decorations? You're like, well, I made them. That's that's right. kind of definite bragging rights there. Super cool. I love it. What is next on your agenda? What can we expect to see on the sweeter side of Serious Eats? Just give us a a tiny taste. I'm working on homemade granola bars right now, actually. Oh, fun. yeah, there's been a, a, a good project. I need to have like a little bit of healthiness in my life to balance out all of the desserts. So I thought that that would be a good kind of like back to school recipe to come up uh, later in the year. And coming up a little bit sooner than that, I've got blackberry cobbler. Ooh, and yes. That's kind of a little bit more seasonal to right now. And I'm very excited about that. We've got such beautiful fruit coming in from the farmer's market and I just have to take advantage of it right now. Oh, fabulous. Will you invite me over, please? Come on over. Okay. If, thank you. If you're making blackberry tart, I'm on my way. You can uh, continue to fall in love with Stella Parks' iconic American desserts made better as she illuminates the culinary past and makes, I will say, all of the desserts from our childhood doable, 
delicious and even better, uh, proving, of course, why we still love them and crave them today. You will find Stella's prose on SeriousEats.com and her new cookbook just released for every dessert lover and dessert maker entitled Brave Tart. And you can follow her on social media, of course, at Brave Tart, B-R-A-V-E-T-A-R-T. I'm going to hold you to pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, Stella. So please come back. I'm good for it. Let's do it. I look forward to it. Thank you. And here's to um, Rainbow Sprinkles. Cheers. Thanks, Amy. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your passion. And the delicious conversation continues in your radio right after this. Be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, feeding your soul in more ways than you can count every Sunday. Summer is here, and chances are you're showing off your arms, right? A bathing suit, a sundress, a tank top. You are, right? Well, if you want sleek, sexy, gorgeous arms and shoulders, I know I do, do not touch your dial because celebrity fitness and metabolic nutrition expert Lisa Lynn is here. And in the next less than 10 minutes, she is going to guide you through her seven-day arm makeover. All you need to turn those arms into sculpted works of art is a pair of free weights and some guidance. And Lisa is your girl. Lisa Lynn is the founder of Lynn Fit Nutrition, the author of the award-winning The Metabolism Solution. And of course, you see her regularly with Dr. Oz as she shares her workouts and insight. I am very delighted when she stops by and proud to call her our resident fitness expert as she whips us back into shape. Hi, Lise. Hello. Are you pedaling away? I, I am. Can you hear that or me breathing heavy? Yeah. Stationary bike in place of an office chair. Oh, yeah. Why sit when you can be moving? Yeah, it's brilliant. Okay. Uh, I happen to see the first of the seven-day arm maker makeover rather videos uh, on Facebook when I, too, was in a hotel room. And <laughs> I want you to know that I heard you. No excuses. You said That's you right. can do the workout anywhere, anytime. And I didn't have a dumbbell. I was prepping for a TV segment, and I had a jar of pepperoncini. <laughs> and it, it worked, right? It worked. So uh, tell us, no excuses, seven days. There really aren't. I mean, if I hear one more excuse, I think I could just lose it. I hear this all the time, and the reality is sometimes you just have to be stronger than your excuses. You have to stop right where you are and find something you could do, whether you're doing a dip at the end of your chair, could do that right now, hint, hint, or you're in a hotel room and you don't even have a jar of, or, or a water bottle, you can grab the washcloths, roll them up, squeeze them, and work isometrically. Okay, so let's talk about the weight itself because there are seven basic moves. We'll get to that. But you have to choose the right weight first, you say. So the jar of pepperoncini, uh, if you don't have dumbbells at home, is it a can of garbanzo beans? What is it? Absolutely. A can of garbanzo beans. Um, It can be a water bottle because almost everybody I know has that. It can be anything including a pen. Most importantly, I mean, if you have dumbbells, 
you want to try to do something different that you haven't been doing. So grab a heavier weight. But if you don't, you have to develop a make it work attitude. Okay, Lisa, my arms are getting tired. (laughs) We'll take a quick break. More with resident expert Lisa Lynn right after this. for the ladies that if you don't want big burly arms like we love the guys to have then you want to consider less is more here totally this is a super important point is that it's like a recipe if you want to yield two dozen cookies you double the ingredients well arm workouts are the same if you do too much you bulk if you don't do enough nothing happens so everybody is a little bit different and you can but the good news is you can find the spot that works for you, starting with one set of 20. If you don't like what you see, next time you do it, do, do it second set. Maybe you only need two sets of 20 two times a week, and that's enough to get your arms in shape. And it usually is if you're eating lean. And it is all about eating lean along with the commitment to exercise. Day four and day five, pullovers and seated curls. Yeah, now the pullover, I think, is one workout nobody should, you should never miss this move. Lying down on a, on a bed, you could lie down on the floor, you could lie down on a foam roller. You're holding the dumbbell with what we call one dumbbell, two hands in a triangle grip, stretching it like you're going to scrape the ceiling and bringing it all the way up above your head to the floor. I That's love this one. your tricep. Yeah, it's I, I, great, you, isn't it? You feel it. Yeah. Yes. It works the tricep, the back, the upper chest, your core. It's an all over everything, but I love it because it's a posture corrector. Oh, that's why it feels so good. Yes, makes you stand up straight. And it won't make that big bulky tricep. It works the longer head, so you get just a nice, tight, lean-looking arm. Okay. Seated curls? Seated curls. You're sitting at your office chair right now where you're talking to Lisa Lynn. You could be curling those garbanzos. (laughs) Again, the elbow pin, all the way the dumbbell goes to the ground, and then you're going to pull it up to the shoulder. Pause, please, make a muscle. And then lower it really slow. And a bridge dip. That's what I started doing because of you. Yes, in a hotel room. That can be done, if I'm not mistaken, on the side of a desk, on uh, the bedside table, on the coffee table at home. Anything sturdy that can hold up your weight. I've been a little brutal. You know, I train the guys in the band Chicago and they're in the bus to these Skype workouts. And they're like, well, we have no room. I'm like, do you have a floor? What are you standing on right now? <laughs> Everybody has a floor. You can do dips anywhere you are. If the floor is dirty, put something down. This one not only fixes the tricep, but it really rolls the shoulders back from this slumped posture position because we're all spending so much time on our, our devices. Yes, leaning over. Great move. Yep. And then day seven takes us to a tricep overhead extension. It's day seven of a seven-day arm makeover. Yeah, that's a lot of triceps. Now we're sitting up doing the same thing as we did in, in day one, except we have two hands. Again, the triangle grip. Trying to keep your elbows tight on both sides next to your ears. Dropping the dumbbell down your back. This is a great stretch. And then when you lift the dumbbell up toward the ceiling, great tight. One of the benefits of this one is you get an extreme stretch on the tight tricep. And when it stretches, it, it tightens the muscle. Fabulous. And so once we get to the end of day seven, start over again Keep it consistent, right? 
add in those 10,000 steps every day or your current workout, as you say. And if, if you keep to it and you commit to it, this is a lifelong toned arm workout for, for the rest of our days. That's right. And you know, my favorite thing about fitness, it's not just me being positive. Whatever you put into it is exactly what you get out, but it almost always yields 100% results if you just put, put your effort in there, meaning just do it. I love it. Okay, we're going to just do it. I'll send you a picture of my arms in a few weeks. Awesome. You're beautiful right now, Jamie. Well, thank you. And you're beautiful too, Lisa. And I love having you on the radio. Thank you for sharing your passion. You can learn more. You can follow Lisa's makeover tips, whether it be your arms or your butt or just about anything. If we want to eat fabulous food, well, then we have to work it off too. And you can follow Lisa and all of her videos, uh, her blog, which I love, and get her weekly newsletter as well at linfit.com. It's L-Y-N-F-I-T.com. See you next month, Lise, as we uh, continue the summer workout. You betcha. Have a great day. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of conversation and inspiration. I do hope that I made you hungry and that you'll check out chefjamie.com and my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And of course, that you'll tune in next Sunday for more delicious conversation. You can find podcasts of shows you might have missed, by the way, on iTunes, FeedBurner, and Blueberry. And I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration for the hour. You know, I love just four, three, even two ingredient recipes. And this almond crusted fish is one of my very favorite summer weeknight dinners. It's light, but still luscious. It's quick and easy to make. And the fish comes out moist and flaky with a really crunchy crust. Now I serve it simply with sauteed broccolini and steamed baby potatoes. Dinner's ready. And I think you'll appreciate the crust on the fish because it's entirely gluten-free and it's scrumptious. You need a cup of sliced or slivered almonds, a quarter cup of ground flaxseed, a few fillets of either sole or halibut, salt and pepper, and some olive oil and butter. And what I do is I finely chop half of the almonds and you combine them with the flaxseed. And yes, it has its health benefits, but it adds the craziest crunch. You sprinkle the uh, fish, you know, season it liberally, salt and pepper. Then you dredge the fish fillets in almond flaxseed mixture. And then you combine olive oil and butter in a saute pan, medium heat. You add the fish, you cook medium heat for four minutes on each side, depending upon the thickness of the fillet. And then you take them out and you add the rest of the almonds to the skillet and that brown butter and they get all toasty and yummy and you spoon them over top and yes, you look like a culinary hero. I will post my almond crusted sole recipe uh, once again on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen and I'll meet you here next Sunday in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.